The theme of our liturgy this morning has been the church, if you hadn't noticed, in the worship. And I am speaking to that theme this morning, but I'm coming to it from a little different direction than perhaps you would see readily, but you'll hear the theme as, as I preach. Looking to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19, going to read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, confidence which has great reward. For you didn't for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this entire section of Hebrews 10 is a warning to us. And most people, or a lot of people, when they read it, they get to verse 26 and they say, okay, it says if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And it's been an error throughout the church for many people to teach and to hold out as truth that this means that if you become a Christian and Jesus forgives you of your sins and then you sin again, then there's no sacrifice for that sin, and all is lost. Well, that, doesn't, that isn't unified with the rest of Scripture as an interpretation of this passage, and it's not even correct with the book of Hebrews as an interpretation of this passage. 
So what's being talked about here in the context? Well, what's being talked about is the actual casting aside of the gospel. It's actually to apostatize. Have you heard the term apostasy before? It's not something we use generally in regular conversation talking about being apostate or apostatizing. But what does apostasy mean? Well, it simply means that it means abandonment. To apostatize is to abandon the Christian faith. It is to recant, to renounce, to repudiate, to deny, withdrawing from the Christian faith. And we think about this today and we might think, well, okay, that used to happen back to those people in the book of Hebrews because, you know, they were always getting arrested back in the old days. You know, the Christians got arrested and they were faced with really tough decisions like, do you recant your Christianity? Do you not deny Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, we're going to kill you. And so we think, well, that's what that is about. That's about apostasy in those types of situations where there were dramatic moments of crisis, but thankfully we don't have dramatic moments of crisis anymore, right? Well, the Holy Spirit isn't warning the readers of the book of Hebrews to simply be prepared for crisis. They had already endured crisis. Their property had already been confiscated. They had already been imprisoned, right? He was warning them to endure and not to shrink back. He said there was a danger, and the danger is the slow casting aside of Christ, How does apostasy happen? Is apostasy a tsunami? You've all seen uh, reports of tsunamis, right? These giant rogue waves that wash across the land. Or is apostasy simply a fact or a matter of erosion? Do things erode away? And someday there's an apostasy. There's an apostasy. There's a removal of faith. Well, we may live to see a rogue wave. Some of us have seen a rogue wave in our lives. We've seen something hit us very, very hard. And it was like getting slammed in the side of the head with, you know, a two-by-four. And our faith was challenged. And depending on how we were prepared for that might depend on what it would do to us. But the fact is our preparation for it is probably more related to how we had dealt with all the little kinds of pressures that had come to us up to that time. All of the temptations to erode away at our faith that come at us. It starts with a small trickle going down the side of the hill. I can show you some of these on this property. You could walk out to the retention pond and see a real nice deep gully, right? Have you ever seen the Badlands? Has anyone ever been to the Badlands? Okay, the Badlands are false advertising. I want you to know that if you decide to go there because you saw pictures in a John Wayne uh, movie, you think you're going to go see some nice 4,000-foot mountains. But these things are like a giant miniature. But they're still huge gullies, ruts, and you can drive a car right through them. What started off as just a small trickle, just a small wearing away, has become this huge area of of, uh, uh, ravines created as the forces have washed it away. And this is how it is with apostasy. We don't apostatize typically when some huge thing hits us. We apostatize a little at a time. And so the Holy Spirit warns us here in Hebrews chapter 10, warns us against the ways in which we will be tempted to apostasy. He first says that we must draw near to God, draw near with sincere hearts, full assurance of faith, clean consciences, and bodies washed clean. 
the whole concept of drawing near to God today, uh, when I think about how the, the readers of Hebrews would have understood drawing near to God and their anticipation of God, you know, it's an interconnected reality that as you draw near to God, you anticipate him more. And some of us are tired of this life because we're old. And so we just sometimes wake up and our bones creak and we kind of would like to be with God just because it's painful not to be present with him personally. But that's not what the reality of drawing near to God should be. The reality of drawing near to God should be our understanding that this world isn't where we belong and that we desire to be with him that we see that there's a day coming. It's like a hope. When I was younger, I used to always live for the next thing that was coming. Now, I, I got away from that finally, but I always used to live for what was next. Are we going to, you know, are we going to have a trip? We're going to do something. I grew up on a farm. It was pretty boring, okay? We worked, we ate, we slept. We worked, we ate, we slept. And so if we got to do something different, like go to town or go on a little trip or do something else, that was exciting. So we get to go and do something else. And we would look forward to it. I would look forward to things two months in advance. But can you imagine looking forward to being present with God? Our whole lives looking forward to being with God, to being near to him, to being in his presence. This is what we're made for. What we do here is just the, the preamble. It's just the preparation. It's just like training. That's what we do here, but we should have a longing to be present with him, a longing to be with him, to be near to him. Matthew Henry says, since such a way of access and return to God is opened through Jesus Christ, it would be the greatest ingratitude and contempt of God and Christ still to keep at a distance from him. They must draw near by conversion, they being we, they must draw near by conversion and by taking hold of his covenant. They must draw near in all holy conversation, like Enoch, walking with God. They must draw near in humble adorations, worshiping at his footstool. They must draw near in holy dependence and in a strict observance of the divine conduct towards them. Okay, did you get that? They must draw near in holy dependence and in a strict observance of the divine conduct towards them. Are you aware of God's conduct toward you and what he has done for you and what he does for you constantly? They must draw near in conformity to God and communion with him, living under his blessed influence, still endeavoring to get nearer and nearer till they come to dwell in his presence. But they must see to it that they make their approach to God after a right manner. God wants us to come to him and draw near to him. He commands us, draw near to him. Drawing near to God necessitates that we repudiate the world, that we turn away from the world. We don't come to apostasy instantly by throwing ourselves headlong into the world like we're diving off into the mosh pit. That's not how we come to apostasy and, and the destruction of our faith. No, it comes by erosion. It starts with giving our affections to an unbelieving man or woman. It starts with looking over at women's bodies when we're at the beach, right? 
It starts with wearing what all the other young ladies are wearing. It starts with padding your expense report just a little bit, just adding a little bit in there, adding a few miles on. And the erosion starts, and it's just a little erosion, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until one day the sins are so heavy that you've moved so far away from God that you wonder what's the point in maintaining any kind of verbal connection with him because you've sinned so much and you've gone so far. Erosion. Draw near to God. Hold fast the confession. Hold fast the confession. The Holy Spirit says we must hold fast. What is the church supposed to be today? What are we supposed to be? 1 Timothy 3, 14 and following. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Then he goes into the confession. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Then he goes into the warning. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And he's warning them about the men who will lead them away. There's a connection here in 1 Timothy between the church, the common confession, and the warning against falling away. What is the church supposed to be? I was saddened this weekend as I went home We spent a few days with my mother, and for the first time in maybe four years, I attended a service at her church, my old church growing up. And while I was there, I was thinking, this is the church where my father was the equivalent of an elder. They didn't have elders, but he was kind of the equivalent of an elder there, where men had conviction. And while they had not been taught good theology, they loved God's word and they loved his church. They were men of of converted hearts, of sincere faith. And as I sat there on Sunday morning, and as they got through the very, very effeminate singing, the assistant pastor stood up and he announced the sermon of the day. And then the video started, and it was Dave Ramsey in the first of the three-part series on his financial seminar. And Dave Ramsey entertained us with witticisms about cutting up credit cards and getting out of debt. Now, I'm not opposed to Dave Ramsey, but I think Dave Ramsey might even be somewhat shocked that he was used as the substitute for the sermon in a church on a Sunday morning. And I was horrified by it. I got up, I went into the the, uh, lobby, and I grabbed a cup of coffee, and I just sat there by myself and thought, I'll just sit here by myself. What is the church supposed to be? Well, we see in Acts 5, after the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, that at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. What is the church supposed to be? It's supposed to be the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. On the one hand, the world should hold the church in high esteem while not daring to associate with her. I looked up this word in the Bible, in the Greek, of this high esteem, 
And this, work is, this word is actually megaluno, probably not pronounced wrong, right? But megaluno, right? Wrong? Megaluno sounds like mega, right? It was the first mega church. You understand? This was the first mega church. They held them in mega, in esteem. But it didn't mean what it means today. It did not mean what it means today. On the other hand, multitudes should constantly be added to her number because that's what happens when the church is what she's supposed to be. Multitudes are added to her number. Do you think that Dave Ramsey video on Sunday morning is an anomaly in our churches today? I have a fear. My fear is that it would be improvement an improvement if, if that's what happened on a lot of churches on Sunday morning, if they showed the Dave, Dave Ramsey financial seminar. That's the reality. The reality of the church. What crisis took the church of my father's faith to its present state? What tsunami hit it? None. Erosion. Erosion. A slow wearing away. What is the church supposed to be? Why would none of the rest dare associate with them? Weren't they seeker sensitive? I mean, sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Church is supposed to be seeker sensitive. You may say that it was just the temporary presence of the apostles working, the miracles that gave, that attested to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's truth in that. Ananias and Sapphira had just died for lying to the Holy Spirit. There's truth in that. But if you say that's all it was, then you're missing the big picture. Because the big picture is the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the church. He was manifest in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Revival, awakening, rebirth, Moving from death to life, faith in action, faith demonstrated, faith lived, the church alive. I was thinking about revival this past week. Have anybody never heard the term revival before? It'll be a little hard to get you to have a frame of reference. I guess everybody's heard it before. I was thinking about revival this past week. What does revival mean to you? I had a college... Uh, professor who was my sponsor, who's an Old Testament scholar named Victor Hamilton. And I remember one time when he was preaching about this subject, he said, well, you know, we really can't have a revival because we've never had the vival yet. But what does revival mean? What is it? I was thinking this past week after being home and seeing the things that I'd seen and being saddened, I thought, because my church, my old home church, was a revivalist type of church, Right? I thought about how people think about revival. And for some people, it means going to an altar. You know, some churches have a, a rail at the front of the church, and you go down there to pray. It's kind of like a catalyst, catalytic converter. You go down to the front, you, you pray, and you have some kind of uh, uh, a feeling of emotion sometimes. Sometimes you pray. I'm not saying that nothing can happen when you go down and pray at a revival, at a, an altar. I'm not saying that, that you can't have... Repentance going down and praying at an altar. But this is what 
they, they're, they're programmed and they're taught to understand should happen in terms of revival. You should have an emotional experience. For some people, the revival is like the revival that they were talking about in Toronto some 10 or 12 years ago, where people were laughing uncontrollably and, uncontrollably and roaring like lions, right? And that was the sign, that the great moving, the revival. And people are still going there. They're going there uh, taking pilgrimages to, to, to Toronto. They went there by the thousands 10 years ago to see this thing and to, to pick up on it and take it somewhere else to wherever they were going. So I was thinking this week, well, what would happen if we had a revival, but the revival would be something like this? What if instead of having people have an emotional experience or instead of them having some kind of uncontrollable fit of laughter, wouldn't it be interesting to see how people would respond if, if there was a big announcement across the country that there was a revival at a church in Indiana? And at the church in Indiana, this was the sign of the revival, that women were renouncing feminism and men were embracing their responsibilities as husbands and fathers. And children were obeying their parents. Oh. And couples were throwing away their contraception in favor of bearing children, being fruitful to God. And what if they had all things in common so that nobody had an unmet need? What if they were such salt and light to the community that no one in the community who was in rebellion against God would be comfortable with the members of that church? But all the more, day by day, multitudes were being added to her number. Wouldn't that be something? And, of course, you you understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that the things that mark the work of God aren't generally the things we think of as revival. And I would love it if this was Church of the Good Shepherd, but it's not. The best thing that I've ever heard about Church of the Good Shepherd was a comment made to Mark Westerfield once about four years ago, where someone... When, when hearing that, that Mark attended this church, said to him, oh, that's the serious church. But what if we were so marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit that it was impossible to ignore, that we stood as such a pillar of the truth, the household of faith, the church of the living God, that it was impossible to ignore us Not because of our political power, not because of our beautiful building, not because of anything, but the presence of God and the effect of God's Holy Spirit on our lives, making us holy. He goes on and he says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. That sounds good, doesn't it? Consider how to stimulate. I was thinking about this and I thought, stimulate, I just think of coffee coffee, right? And so, wow, I get up in the morning and I had my cup of coffee today and I pour in lots of those little cups of sugar, dilution, whatever it is. And so my coffee is more like some other kind of thing. It's very stimulating. But that's not what these words are talking about. These words are talking about provoking having disagreement, sharpening. It's a different kind of stimulation. It's a little bit negative. It's a little bit difficult. While we were at uh, my mother's, we were taking a ride home in the van from the church service, and, and my daughter Allie was 
commenting, her, her cousin was there in the van, and Allie was commenting that it was interesting that Dave Ramsey didn't say anything about tithing, or he said some, one little passing statement about tithing. Well, my niece became very, very defensive, and she thought Allie was attacking Dave Ramsey, who I guess she felt responsible for in some way, or the church maybe. And so my niece was, you know, kind of sparring back at Allie. Well, you... And so, of course, I had to butt in. And I said, uh, I said to my niece, I said, you know, I said, here's something that I want you to learn in your life. I want you to learn that no one will ever improve you who doesn't make you angry. No one will ever improve you who doesn't make you angry. Think about all the prophets and how the people love them. Think about Jeremiah, right? As soon as Jeremiah spoke to the people, what did they say? All right, Jeremiah, we're with you. We're with you. In the early service, I said, let's get pizza. You know, your words make me hungry. Let's get pizza. No. What did they say? Where's the nearest well? Where's a nice deep well? Where's the well when he hits the bottom? We can hear the thunk. We hate this man. He makes us angry. He's told us our sins, and we're furious with him. We don't wake up and say to ourselves on a given morning, I think I'll surround myself with uh, sycophants and toadies and yes-men today. Like a big wave, that's not what we do. We, we slowly begin to avoid the brother whose slap will improve us. And we start to cul cultivate relationships with the kissing enemy. And we forget what Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And this particular sin is so insidious because in the church, it often happens that the person who's tempting us is a divisive man. And he flatters us as he approaches us. And he slowly turns us away from those who would truly care for our souls by telling us that their slaps are just mean-spirited, that there's no love there. Erosion. Erosion. It happens to us. The Holy Spirit says that we must not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. And in the early church, this was very important because assembly could mean death. They could be find themselves raided by the Roman soldiers or by people who hated them, by the Jewish leaders. They could find themselves carried off and beaten. And we know that these actual people, these particular people, had seen their property confiscated and probably had been beaten and had been put in prison and had gone to visit those in prison. And they understood being rejected for the sake of the gospel. Why is assembly so important? They were still told to assemble. Why is it so important? Well, we can't have the benefits of the church, the benefits of God's grace without proximity to him, and this is where he is. The body of Christ, the household of God, this is the church. This is where he is. How are you going to have the benefits that he gives you without assembling yourself to this group of people? You will not. How will you provoke other people and encourage other people when you never see them? You will not. 
And so we see ourselves not only removing ourselves from God, God being able to work through us for the benefit of others, but we see ourselves removing ourselves from the place where we can be receiving nourishment from God through his church because we're not joining ourselves to her. And we'll find ways to be away from her and reasons to be away from her. And not only do we remove ourselves and do we remove our influences as God can use us, but we remove others from the supply lines of grace because, because we are not going to uh, contribute without proximity. We're not going to provoke and encourage. Everyone downstream from us is going to lose. Now, this is particularly true of fathers. This morning we had dedications of infants, right? Fathers, your children are downstream from you. Your children. If you forsake the assembly, they, they're the ones that bear the, the loss. The only time I remember not going to worship as a child was on a certain bitter winter Sunday, and it stands out in my memory because we didn't go to church. Certain bitter winter Sunday when the snow was blowing and the road had iced over, we were on our way and the car suddenly did either a 180 or a 360, I can't remember which. We were hardly away from home. The old black Ford station wagon, full of our big family. And I don't even remember if my dad said anything, and I don't remember if he had to turn the car around or not because I can't remember which way it was facing. All I remember is we drove back home. And that's the only time I remember. My dad thinking, I'm not going to endanger the lives of my family to get them there this morning. But any other time, my father, if the church was assembled, we were assembled. My father didn't have to make weekly choices about whether he would go to church because he had already made a choice that was a lifelong one. Nothing would stand in the way. Nothing. So he didn't allow anything to get set up in such a way. Now, we were farmers. He was uh, also worked in the shop. We didn't, defend, excuse me, we didn't depend on the farm for our livelihood, as some men would. And sometimes there would be hay in the field. And sometimes there would be corn in the field. There would be other things. But my father said, well, we'll trust God. And it stayed there. And we went to church. If the church assembled, we assembled. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. We had to bring church home with us. So if there were speakers that came in from out of town, we brought them home with us. If there were singers that came in from out of town, we brought them home with us. If there was just... I don't know, strangers, unworthy people, stray dogs, we brought them home with us. And my father entertained them. We would come after Sunday evening service. They would come to the house and we would have ice cream. And I can remember chipping the ice out of the pond and taking it up and making homemade ice cream. And my father would be in there with the guests and we would take it in and we would have ice cream. And then about 9 o'clock, my father would have to leave and go to work sometimes because he worked third shift and he'd have to go. But if he didn't have to go, the church was the top of his priority. If he wasn't doing what he had to do as a man to provide for his family, the church was the top of his priority. And even providing, he was being obedient to the, to the commands of God. Nourishment flowed from the river of God through my father to me. He had an ordering principle. And it wasn't sports and it wasn't work and it wasn't pleasure and it wasn't money. 
It was the church of the living God. I received many good ordering principles from my father. I understood authority. I understood a man giving up his life for his wife and children. I remember in high school, I would walk him because I started to get an understanding and appreciation of my father. I would walk him at night out to his car at 9 o'clock where he would get in and take that 45-minute drive to Flint. You know Flint. Take that 45-minute drive to Flint to work all night and then drive back in the morning. Giving his life for his family. I knew what love was. But much, much more. And what I came to value most were his drawing near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. His holding fast to the confession. Though for him, it was simply an unsophisticated love of the word of God. His holding fast to the confession and his love for the church. We don't apostatize all at once. We erode. We choose to do this or that activity and and miss youth group, right? Some of our youth missed part of youth group this week because they went to a movie, and so the leaders made them do push-ups. I'm glad. Anything. Good. We choose to do extra overtime, not of necessity, but of a desire for a smarter-looking car. We decide not to attend church while on vacation but that we'll take a vacation not just from work, but from God and everything. And I didn't go to church on vacation until a few years ago. And I've made it a practice now to go to church on vacation. And it's been a good practice. And you say, well, you just told us about this horrible time you had watching Dave Ramsey. And I say, let me tell you, if I hadn't had that horrible time watching Dave Ramsey, I wouldn't have the entire afternoon and evening talking to my family about the things of God. The whole rest of the day. Not giving ourselves to small group or the college fellowship. Oh, but Max, you're just going too far. You're going too far. People can overcommit themselves to the church. Okay. While I think it's possible that someone might take on more specific tasks than they are reasonably capable of taking on to serve the church, and I've seen this happen occasionally, this isn't the problem we have, people. Okay? Just everybody agree. It's not the problem that we have. The church isn't a restaurant that we frequent occasionally, but not too often, so that we don't tire of the menu. It is the household of God. If you're a member of her, you are she. How can you get tired of yourself? How can you overcommit to yourself? It's not something out there. Here we are, the church. The Holy Spirit puts us together like living stones and he dwells in us. And he makes some to do this and some to do this and some to do this to build up everybody else. You're not just out there. If you are, you've been eroding. She is the household of God. Prefer her to everything. Don't talk to me about overcommitment until you can come to me and say, look, we're just like Acts 2, 42 to 47. Look at us. Look at us. We're continually devoting our, continually, we're continually, continually devoting ourselves 
to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone having a sense of awe, signs and wonders taking place. All of those who believed together had all things in common, selling their property and possessions, sharing with them all. Nobody had any need. Day and day and day, continually, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord adding to their number daily. When we get there, come talk to me. But when we get there, you won't want to come talk to me. Right? Because something will have happened to you and to me that will change us. And there's something else that you have to realize. Just being present on Sunday morning, that doesn't mean you're not in a gully. That doesn't mean I'm not in a gully because I'm here. There are lots of people who are on the very edge of apostasy all over this country on church, in church on Sunday mornings. And there are, are churches that are just vast gullies where everyone there has done everything but turn off the lights. You understand? They have left the faith. They just didn't turn the lights off yet. Next, the Holy Spirit says that we're to encourage, plead with, appeal to one another. Encourage, plead with, and appeal to one another. Did I was looking at the Bailey blog. Uh, David put up this post about the uh, Tour de France, uh, the guys driving the bikes up the hill. And can you imagine how they were helping one another as they were these guys that overtook the other guys in the last 10, what was it, 10 miles? 10 minutes. Where they just outstripped them. Just two guys deciding that they're going to do this thing. And they pass everybody else. And they come in and it's just just great triumphal moment as they come to the, the top of the mountain. Encouraging one another. First Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Running alongside of each other. Encouraging one another. Pleading with one another. Appealing to one another. Brother, don't give up. The hill is, is in front of us yet. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. Trust in God. Believe in Him. Don't give up. It's hard. I know it's hard. Don't quit. And all the more as you see the day approaching, what day? The day of the Lord. You see, we shouldn't be encouraging each other less as we come, become more comfortable with one another and, and think more about the different kind of pasta dish that we make that we bring to the, to the potluck. We encourage each other more 
because things are getting harder and some things are steeper. And the day is approaching. The day when God will come with rewards and with vengeance. And for those who have cast aside his son because they've allowed their lives to be eroded to the point of apostasy, he will come with vengeance. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Encourage, encourage, encourage. Are you suffering from erosion? Are you suffering from erosion? Have you been making compromises that are leading you away from God? Do you recognize them in your life? Today, you need to stop. Today, you need to uh, take the instruction of the Holy Spirit and where you see those eroded ravines, there's this stuff we put in ravines called riprap. You guys know what riprap is? Big chunks of rock. And you fill the ravine with the riprap and it closes it up. And that's what we need. We need the word of God and his instruction to us in Hebrews 10. Filling our lives and closing up those places and repenting of those things, those erosions that have been happening with us. So that we might draw near to God. So that we might anticipate him and anticipate closeness with him and proximity to him. Draw near to God, it says in James 4. Submit, therefore, to the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we let go, and the ravines form, and the, and the erosion is happening, it's free, it's liberating, it's wonderful, it's happy. Because we're seduced and intoxicated by this world and by our own flesh. But when we see the stop to it, our, our laughter has to turn to mourning. And we have to come and confess our sin to God. And we have to resist the devil. And we have to humble ourselves before God. And he says, when you do that, I will exalt you. I'll take you. <laughs> That's when you're mine. That's when you've come close to me. That's when you've drawn near to me. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the confession. When we sing, confess. When you read God's word, confess. When we teach our children, confess the truth about God. When we're encouraging one another, confess. Say it. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Don't give up. Brother, don't give up, sister. Have faith in God. He is true when all men are liars. He is true. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Provoke me. Come on. 
provoke me. Assemble. Not just now, all the time. Assemble. Do you realize what these things do to your families, to your children? Assemble. Take every opportunity. It's not too much. It's not too much. Can you have too much of the church? Can you have too much? Oh, well, I'll get sick of you. You'll get sick of me. It's true. And then we'll get sanctified. You can't have too much. Make the church your ordering principle. And nothing else in this life. Encourage one another. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Take these big stones and throw them into the gullies. And allow God by his Holy Spirit to fill in all of those, all of those valleys, all of those gullies. And to heal you. And to heal us. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray.